In a world of mass production, there is perhaps increasing value on the handcrafted. The fact that someone would take time, their creativity and ability to fashion something particular and personal from a piece of wood, metal, or fabric, to fashion it together with intricacy and with care and thought. In the context of one's heirlooms, there is few things more valuable than a handcrafted item. Incredible value, perhaps even priceless for a multitude of families. As we begin the Yod strophe, that is verse 73 through 80 of Psalm 119, and this journey through Psalm 119, each poetic paragraph, one letter of the Hebrew alphabet, all 22 different letters that we're walking through in this journey, we come to a portion this morning in which the psalmist confesses what we could spend all day talking about, his origins, his designer. He makes a confession at the very beginning of this text that he has been handcrafted. He has personally been handcrafted by Yahweh. That this truth of who has made him is to impact every portion of his life. Morality, right and wrong. Ethics and what he's doing and what he ought not to do. His destiny in life, his meaning in life, his purpose in life. Everything is built around this understanding that he has been handcrafted by the Lord, by Yahweh. And it shapes every aspect of his life as it does ours. Every one of us, regardless of your age, regardless of your education or background, what you believe about your origins impacts every aspect of your life. Every one of ours will impact the relationships that we keep, the responsibilities that we walk in, the way that we speak, why we do what we do is impacted by Am I a self-made person by my own hands, or have I been handcrafted with a purpose? Am I a cosmic accident, or have I been intimately and personally designed for a purpose, to glorify and to know the Lord? That's what Yod is speaking about this morning. What's it mean to be handcrafted? This very beginning confession that he has been established and fashioned by the hands of Yahweh, the Lord. Of course, he doesn't have physical hands as I put my hands out. I don't want that to be confusing. But he has been intricately and intentionally designed and made for a purpose. And it's this initial confession that begins Yod that walks through the rest of the verses. Three components that shape who he is. Three components that shape his identity, his worth, and his value. And if you and I, brothers and sisters in Christ, forget this, or as we become forgetful of this throughout the week, it will impact our lives, every one of us. But when we remember, when we stop and recall that you have been handcrafted personally and purposefully, That will shape your life. That will shape your insight and how you're to take your next step in your current trial or season of life. Because the one who handcrafted us, he does not forget us and he does not leave us behind to stumble through life. As you have your Bibles, open with me if you haven't already to Psalm 119, verse 73 through 74 as we begin. If you don't have a Bible, please do follow in the Pewback Bible in front of you. As we notice, the first of these three understandings of how the Lord has handcrafted us ought to impact our life. And my prayer for us is that 
The Holy Spirit would, like a masterful surgeon, rewire us in every part of our life to believe that this is true, and to think through the implications of what it means to believe that you and I have been handcrafted by the Lord. We notice first and foremost in 73 and 74 of Psalm 119 that the Lord has handcrafted us to abide by His Word. He has designed us to operate by His Word, to abide by His Word. 73 and 74. The psalmist begins speaking to Yahweh, the Lord. Your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you, they shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word, made and established. The same idea is given, we won't flip there, but in Deuteronomy 32, you can write that reference down, the same wording is given about Israel. That Israel was made and fashioned, made and established. The psalmist echoes the same call in his individual life as one living by the covenant of God, that he has been made and established. And this is how you and I have been handcrafted to operate relationally, morally, confidently in the Word of God. When we live our life according to the voice of God, the Word of God, the God-breathed Scriptures, the Scriptures that breathe out the breath of God in our lives, we can have confidence that how we live is wise. It pleases the one who handcrafted us because the one who handcrafted us cares about how we live. He cares about right now what you and I will do for the rest of the day, what we'll do right now in our lives. He cares. And he's designed us to operate by abiding in his word. It's a good gift for us. And when we don't, every one of us knows this, whether we're young or not so young, every one of us knows when we decide to go through life by our own wisdom, to be wise according to our own eyes, our cleverness, or the latest podcast that we listen to, the latest insights we try to craft, when we do so, we find chaos and we find misfortune. We find brokenness. If you don't believe that's true, that when we try to live life outside of abiding by the Word of God, simply look around. Look around and look at the brokenness in our world. Not only our culture today, right now in 2019, but in any culture, any civilization, any place in time in history. To live outside of the Word of God, to, to not abide in the Word of God, the one who's handcrafted you, is to ask for brokenness. Simply look at our culture. You'll see brokenness all around whether it's finding relief in medications or, or any kind of addiction or whatever the form may be, whatever suppression, whatever running to entertainment, whatever to, to misbalance of work and workaholism, you name it. There is a squiggle of brokenness in every single person and it forms itself in abuses in every single culture from the smallest of relationships to the largest even in government scales. If you don't believe that we're designed to operate in abiding in the word of the good one who has handcrafted us, simply look around. But in reality, you could also simply look within, couldn't you? I know I can. Look at my life and see where I'm tempted to find my value and my worth and my identity and what I do and how quickly or cleverly I might respond to the insecurities in my life that bubble up at different 
points, to lust or desires, the thing that find their way into your life and what you're doing and why you're doing it. Simply look inside at yourself and look at the areas where you seek to walk through life, your relationships and your responsibilities, outside of abiding in the Word of God, regardless of your age. You will find an area of frustrated brokenness. Inside and outside. We were handcrafted to abide in the Word of God. Every part of us, if we don't believe that our origins, if we don't believe that we've been handcrafted by God, we will believe that we have crafted ourselves. If we don't believe that the Word of God is actually relevant and authoritative for us in our lives, we will believe that we are to operate by our own authoritative Word over our own life. And when we do that, we will each self pave a road to brokenness that may look a little different. It may look with a little different pride on it, a different flag, a different college football team, but they will all fizzle in the same sense of brokenness because they're self-made. If we don't believe we've been handcrafted and handmade by our Lord, we will believe that we ultimately are the authority over our lives, and it will lead to brokenness in a multitude of different ways. This is what the psalmist says. The psalmist said that he's handmade and he's been fashioned by Yahweh, crafted to be given understanding by him. It's because he's handcrafted in verse 73. Did you look at that? Your hands have made and fashioned me. It's this confession that leads him to go to the one who hand-designed him for understanding. So here's a point of application. When things begin to get tough, when your life begins to show signs that things are breaking down, where do you go? To whom do you turn for understanding? Do you spend a few more hours on the drawing board and figure it all out yourself? Do you Google it? Or do you go to the Lord, the one who gives us understanding and according to his word? Look at your schedule. Look at your routine. Look at my routine. Where do we go for understanding that I may learn your commandments? It's the psalmist's confession that he's been handmade and fashioned by the Lord and established by the Lord that leads him to seek the Lord for understanding according to the Lord's commandments. If we don't do that, we will never be able to say what the psalmist says in verse 74. Look at the confession that he makes. 74 stands on the shoulders of 73. What a unique confession. The psalmist desires such a unity of his life with the Word of God that he says, those who fear you, Lord, those who abide in your Word, we might say, those who have understanding and who have learned your commandments, verse 74, those who fear you, when they look at me, they will rejoice. When they look at the psalmist, the psalm writer saying, when they look at my life, People that fear you and already know you, when they look at me, they will rejoice. Not because he's awesome, but because they look at his life and they say, the fingerprints of the one who handcrafted him are all over his life. They're all over how he handled that situation. Boy, I would have done this, but look at what he did. Look at what she did. The marks of the designer, according to his word, are all over them. And it doesn't mean you've lived a perfect life. Quite the opposite. It means that your past brokenness all of a sudden becomes a story of God's grace and mercy as He's rewiring your life. 
So in your marriage, if those of you that are married, if you've had seasons of conflict or you're in seasons of conflict, to make the decision, both of you, out of a fear of the Lord, to rewire your lives in submission to the goodness of the one who's handcrafted you, to abide in his word, he will do such a thing in your marriage, I assure you, that others who fear you or fear the Lord will look at your life and say, oh, God is good all the time, all the time. That was a test. You did good. All right. That's the goodness of our Lord. The one who's handcrafted us has called us to abide in Him. So what the statement in 74 is not egotistical. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice. But it's a statement of a desire, a prayer of His heart, that God, let me live so close to Your Word. Let me rest and abide so close to You when I'm sorrowful, when I'm hurting, when I'm anxious even when I'm in victory, that when others looked at me, they would see your word. And they would give glory to you, not to me. That's his great desire, and that ought to be a great prayer for us to lift up to the Lord. So regardless of how you came this morning, what a gift that the Lord has given us, and regardless of your season or context, we can lift our eyes to the Lord the maker of heavens and earth, the one who has handmade us. And he can give us peace. He can give you hope and forgiveness in Christ and reestablish you in the goodness of his word. The way that he's created you to abide is by his good word. Outside of it, you'll only find brokenness. But if yet in brokenness, look to him and find rest. It's how he's designed you. The Lord has handcrafted us to abide by His Word in the context of the New Covenant by the blood of Christ under His rule and, his, and for His glory. And we go on to 75 through 77. We notice, secondly, that the Lord will mercifully stretch out His hand by His Word to bring correction and comfort. The Lord will mercifully stretch out His hand by His Word to bring correction and and comfort, correction, and comfort. Notice what the psalmist says, 75 through 77. He continues on. I know, O Lord, remember, all capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh, the personal name of the Lord. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love, your hesed, let it comfort me according to your promise to your servant. And let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. So the Lord is righteous, he begins. He is the holy standard. Our very understanding of right and wrong is a reflection of who the Lord is, who Yahweh is. So if I asked you something, if any general test, is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? Our answer ultimately And what is true, it's that which conforms, which shapes to the mind of God. It's what's real. It's what's true. So in the Word of God, God doesn't simply say, hey, this is right, this is wrong, this will be be a good one. Nah, not this one. The law, the character of God, the attributes of God are what determines what is good. Good itself is a reflection of the character of God. That's what's good. That's how we know good. We cannot have any concept of what is ultimately good apart from the ultimate God who's revealed himself to us according to his word. 
He's handcrafted us and he's designed us. And he's made us to worship him, to know him. So innately, we have an understanding of right and wrong, but he's given us his word and he desires us to live according to it. And when we live outside of it, he loves us enough to bring us into affliction. He loves us enough. He loves you enough not to spare the rod. He loves you enough to convict you. He loves you enough to comfort you, to correct you, and to comfort you in your life. Even in discipline, the psalmist says, the Lord has afflicted me. He has disciplined me for a faithful purpose. The Lord has a faithful purpose. I think that's one of the most helpful things we can say. So I want you to mark this, and we're going to flip over to Hebrews 12, something we actually touched on in December. We preached out of this text in our Advent series. But look over to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7 through 11. If you're in the Pewback Bible, that's page 1009. Even in discipline, the Lord is good, as you flip there. Even in discipline, the servants of the Lord, those who know Christ, those who have turned from sin and placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ to forgive them and to be their king, to abide in him, to become his disciples, his followers, Christians, little Christs, who've received forgiveness of sins, who've been made holy and then called to live righteous, holy lives through all the seasons and trials by which we may walk in this earth, is a faithful testimony to the Lord's goodness. Even in discipline, as we experience the, the merciful love of God, the love of God in our afflictions, it comforts us and it consoles us according to His covenant promises. Look at Hebrews 12, 7 through 11. You'll note the similarities to the text we just read in Psalm 119, though written hundreds of years earlier. The author of Hebrews says in verse 7, It is for discipline, Christian, that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Insinuating a good father, right? Verse 8, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful, amen, rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The Lord mercifully stretches out His hand by His word to bring correction and comfort, to run from the word of God. Listen, to run from the word of God and to run from the people of the word of God, the people that fear the Lord, to run from them and to run from the Word of God is to run from discipline and instruction that only the Lord by His Word can bring you. It's to run from the comfort that the Lord brings you in affliction. It's to accuse the Father of being a bad father. 
because he seems not to intervene as we go through affliction and trials. I want to sit on that for a second. Purpose full. Purpose full. The Lord who handcrafted each and every one of us the hardships that we experience, the affliction that we experience, the Lord is able to take what man may mean for evil, as it says in Genesis 50-20, and use it for good. The Lord who loves you and knows you and handcrafted you to abide by His Word is able to lead you in affliction, through affliction, purposefully, purposeful. What the hands of man may desire for evil, the Lord is able to use for good. Purposeful. The psalmist never gives us the full exact details. He never gives us the names of the people afflicting him, the wicked, the proud. He'll he'll describe them. He'll give us a character sketch. But he never tells us exactly who they are. But every one of us in this room, as you think about affliction, you may have a moment where you think, but what about this, as we spoke about last week? The psalmist's declaration is that the Lord is able to do these things and that in faithfulness, Lord, you have afflicted me. Bring me understanding by your word. There is purposefulness in your suffering. You may not know the full extent of it. We may never in this life understand how it all fits together, but we can all say with confidence, with faith, confidence, with faith, that the affliction is purposeful. The same God who handcrafted us is the same God who never lets us go. He's the same God who calls us to abide by His Word, and it's by His Word that He comforts us. That is the wisdom that God gives us. Right now in your affliction, in past affliction, in affliction that's going to come your way in the months ahead, purposeful. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous. And it's in this that the psalmist says, as he goes through affliction, it is still good for us to do what? Here's an insight. Even in affliction, it's good and it's okay to ask God to stop it, to show mercy while we're in it. God, I know there's purpose in this storm I'm experiencing, but will you please show me extra mercy here and bring it to an end at some point sooner than later? And if you don't, I know you're working purpose in that not stopping yet. But as the psalmist says, verse 77, let your mercy come to me. Let your mercy come to me. Why? that I may live, for your law is my delight. The psalmist knows as he experiences correction and comfort, those two rivers run right to the throne of God. And the throne of God has given us His Word. It leads him to the same outlet, the voice of God who handcrafted him. Our loving Lord, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, function like a good and faithful parent who in love will not spare the rod and discipline, nor will the Lord neglect wrapping His arms around us in comfort. 
and wisdom and insight that is beyond our own understanding. That's the peace that the Lord gives us. He is merciful. The Lord is merciful. He's merciful. Have you ever heard somebody say, I like the God of the New Testament, but I do not like the God of the Old Testament? Have you ever heard that saying? The next time somebody says that, just shake your head no. The next time you sense that, just shake your head in the mirror at yourself no. It's wrong. The Lord is the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. He is unchanging in His attributes, in His nature. The Lord is unchanging. And He is the merciful God. He is merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in love in all of His interactions with His creation. At the fall of man that took place in Genesis 3, the Lord would have been just to extinguish the rebellious creation, but He did not. He worked a purpose at the very beginning. And He would send the snake crusher to come from the very beginning, who would come through the line of Eve working purpose even through sinfulness, even through brokenness and affliction, clothing the naked Adam and Eve with a suitable sacrifice. Never think that the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament are different. Father, Son, and Spirit, there is but one God who's interacted with all creation. It's His creation that He loves and He's handcrafted. He's not in some other room just waiting. I hope they'll call. He's intricately involved in creation. He loves you and cares for you, and He works purpose in what He does. And this is good news for us. This is the best news you could ever hear this morning. It's purposeful according to His Word. The psalmist requests of the Lord for mercy because that's who He is. This is written hundreds of years before the Son would take on flesh. And Jesus is intricately involved as well. The Son is intricately involved through all time and place. Father, Son, and Spirit, eternal And it's the psalmist who says before the Son even takes on flesh and walks among us, oh, you're merciful, God, give me your mercy. In Jonah 4.2, do you remember at the very end of Jonah, Jonah, the reason that he runs, he says to God, he says to the Lord, the reason I went away, the reason I didn't go to the Ninevites is because I know you're merciful. Matter of fact, he says, and he prayed to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And he didn't want to see God show grace and mercy upon the wicked pagan people that have done terrible things to Israel. In Psalm 86, 15, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. There is but one Lord and He is unchanging. And believer in Christ, He is able to anchor you, the one He's handmade in a whole world that is never stop, is built on a never-ending sinking sand. He will anchor you according to His Word. He will correct you according to His Word. He will comfort you in intricate ways that no other human being can, according to His Word. That's the goodness that we have, the merciful God. And we, God, we are thankful for Your mercy. You've shown us in Christ that by Your Spirit we appreciate that we're able to walk through life understanding that even affliction is purposeful, for You are merciful toward us to give us life and to call us to walk according to Your Word, to proclaim Your Word 
to pour us out for your good pleasure. Notice thirdly in 78 through 80. The same Lord who handcrafted us is capable of writing every wrong way and word. The same Lord who handcrafted us, He is capable of writing every wrong way and word. 78 through 80. Let the insolent be put to shame. Insolent, proud, arrogant, that word there, if you're unfamiliar. Why? Because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies, and may my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. Whoa! Did you read verse 78 with me? Imagine that we're preaching a topical message and we haven't been walking through Psalm 119 for the last three months, okay? Imagine that we just parachuted in on verse 78, and that's the first verse you've heard in this about the psalmist who writes this. What would you think about the psalmist? This guy sounds arrogant. Who is this guy? Look what he says. Let the insolent, let the proud, let the arrogant, let them be put to shame. Why? Because they have wronged me with falsehood. Who does this guy think he is? Lord, you put them to shame because they've done wrong to me. Doesn't that sound ridiculous? But of course, context determines meaning, and we didn't just airdrop to this point, did we? The psalmist isn't praying and saying, God, do they know who I am? Do you know who I am, God? The opposite. Do you remember what the psalmist has done so far in the text? His prayer and his desire has been to be synonymous to the word of the Lord. His desire has to, be, has to be living so in hand with the word of God, the forgiveness of God, and, and the covenant of God, according to the teaching of God, the Torah of God, the merciful word of the Lord. That when others are being harsh to him, they are being harsh to the Lord. When others are being proud and wicked toward him, it's as though they are directly being proud and wicked towards the Lord. So what sounds right away at first is an unbelievable statement of arrogance and proud is the opposite. He's saying, my, my life, my, I desire my life to be so in step with yours, with your will for me, Lord. Not my will be done, but your will be done. As John the Baptist said, I must decrease, he must increase. The psalmist makes that same type of plea. Oh, Lord, let my life be so like yours. Let me be so according to your good word, your Torah, your teaching, that these others that insult me, they're actually insulting you because we're so close together. I'm so living in your hand. I'm so abiding by your word that when they come after me, they're actually coming after you. That's the beauty of this text. The same Lord who handcrafted us is capable of writing every wrong word and way. means in this sense in verse 74 as we go back your followers lord they are going to rejoice and be glad when they see me because i have followed you and your word 
The psalmist marries it here with this confession and understanding. In verse 79, that those who fear you turn to me. Look at this. You've got to look at 79. Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. Christian, Christian, the word of God is meant to be on display in our life and our lips. Every one of ours. One of the hardest parts of, of preaching the Word of God is the fact that I've got to go and there's an expectation to live it, which there should be, right? You would want that. It's a good thing. But that means even my wife, who's the only one that gets to see me when we're home, she gets to see. Hey, you remember when you said that thing on Sunday? What the psalmist says is the expectation of what the Word of God is to truly understand the Word of God is to live it in such a way that when others interact with us, they would know the word of the Lord better. So when they would see him at 10 in the morning in the market, as they walked away, it would be like they read the scriptures, they read the Torah of the Lord. When they see him suffer, it's like they're able to go and read a text of scripture and watch, oh, that's that text in action. When they're experiencing a difficult season of their life, a season where they don't quite fit anywhere, where they feel... As they interact with him, it's like, oh, it's that text of Scripture. That's the goodness of the Word of God. It's meant to be on display on a regular basis and also meant to be heard from the people of God, regularly on our lips. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14 through 21, because... What Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14 through 21, is so similar to Yod. It's so similar to Yod, it's unbelievable. It will give you goosebumps. And if it doesn't, we'll turn the AC way down so you do get goosebumps anyway. Okay? I don't promise goosebumps anymore. I'm walking back from that statement. But I will say this is really cool if you catch it. Yod is so similar to what Paul does hundreds of years later to the church in Corinth. Remember this church in Corinth, these brothers and sisters in Christ are wrestling in sin. They're flopping in the mud of sin. They've, dropped, they've just got immaturity. They've got pride coming out everywhere. They're mishandling tons of situations. Right after this text, he's going to deal with a crazy situation of immorality. But keep in mind what we just heard. If you have a pen in hand, you can write these little verses in to make sure you catch it as well. But look in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14. And look at how similar Paul's words are to the church in Corinth with this Yod Psalm in 119. Here we go. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. That's verse 78 and 80 of Psalm 119. Remember Psalm 119, verse 78, let the insolent be put to shame. Paul says, I didn't write this to put you to shame. So why did I write it? But to admonish you, back in 1 Corinthians 4, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. 
So you have a lot of teachers, but you don't have many people taking ownership for you. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Again, that's the only way that we can be made blameless. Verse 80, you'd write Psalm 119, verse 80. That's the confession of verse 80. May my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. So Paul fleshes this out with the gospel. That's the only way we can be made blameless. I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Verse 16 now, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Well, that's verse 79 of Psalm 119. Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. That's what, Psalm, that's what, David's, that's what uh, uh, Paul says right here about himself. He's doing what the psalmist is doing. Verse 17. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere and in every church. Verse 18. Now some are arrogant. That's verse 78 again. Let the insolent be put to shame. As though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Again, 78 and 80. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? That's 75 and 76. With comfort or affliction. The Word of God, the voice of God, works in His people's life in such a way that He conforms us to the image of Christ in our different cultures. To live life by the covenant of the Word of God, to live life now on this side of the covenant according to the blood of Christ, according to His Word, will shape us to abide in Christ, the one who's handcrafted us, just as it happened to those in Israel that were to do what the psalmist said in Psalm 119. It shapes them in the same way to be a people fearing the Lord, loving the Lord, abiding by His Word, knowing the one who handcrafted them. What does the Lord desire to do in your life? Right now in your life, what does the Lord desire to do? The same Lord who handcrafted you is able to right every wrong way and every wrong word. He's done this in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Lord's, Lord's word is God-breathed, and He's designed us not to live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And this leads us into our next steps. Or we might say next step, singular today. Now here it is. You've heard it from the very beginning of our service to the very end of the service as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper in just a moment. Christ Jesus is the only way we as sinners, just as Stephen led us in this clear confession. Christ Jesus is the only way that we as sinners against the Lord can be made righteous and brought into right relationship with our fashioner. He is the only way. And the life He gives us is Life abiding in His Word. He has kept the fullness of the demands of the law, and He offers us the true wisdom of God and how we're to live our lives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we always read chapter 11 during our time of Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul, as he's walked through this same letter, 1 Corinthians, that we just looked at in chapter 4, he takes the church, 
And he gives him this clear dividing line. And he does it by calling it the table of demons or the table of the Lord. The table of demons or the table of the Lord. Now, obviously, if that was the case, if there was like a second table up here with like the demonic Lord's Supper, you'd be like, I'm not doing that one. I'm doing this one. The picture that the Lord gives us, the invitation that the Lord gives us to give a people who are sinners against God, who've hardened their hearts against God, is the invitation is to come and receive forgiveness of sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. The invitation is to be made blameless and holy in Christ. But the Lord's Supper in this way is a declaration of allegiance. Just as we saw the Word of God by those who know Christ, who confess faith in Christ, who've pledged their allegiance to Christ, that allegiance is to reveal itself through our actions and behavior. It's not that it's actions that make us believers, but as believers, those who have trusted and abide in Christ, His Word is to make its way through our lives. And in the Lord's Supper, there is a multitude of aspects that apply to this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'm going to just talk on that for a second before we partake. So our servers are welcome to come forward and have a seat here in the front. But the picture that he gives them as a people is the opportunity and the expectation to walk in allegiance to the Lord. So there's two pictures that are given. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 10, 21 so you can see it. He summarizes and he, and he fleshes this out much further, but I want to just read 10, 21. He says to the church, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. He says, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? What are we doing? There's in the table of demons and the table of the Lord, there is a picture there is a vertical picture up and down. There is a declaration of allegiance that we make with our lives and with our lips. The invitation to the Lord's table is for those who have turned from sin and placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ to be their king, to be the authority over their life and in their life and through their life, to be their peace and their hope. And the Lord's table is one in which we vertically are saying, I have surrendered to Jesus Christ. You're my king. I'm at your table. You speak through my life, my relationships, and my responsibilities. I am yours wholly. Even in that area, even in that area, I am yours. My allegiance is to you. And all those who do not have allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, their allegiance, the picture that he gives, and this is a very pagan culture, is to demons, to, to idols, he says. But it's to anything else. To not have allegiance to Christ is to have allegiance to another spiritual power in the world. And so the invitation to the Lord's Supper, I want you to imagine this imagery in just a few moments. The invitation is to come and to receive. We don't demand, we re we're recipients of what the Lord has established and called His church to call Christians to do, to partake of together as recipients. So coming and eating and drinking is coming and believing that the Lord has forgiven us, to receive Him, to be identified to Jesus, to believe in Him, that His body was broken for, for me, for my sins against Him once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that his blood was spilled for me sufficiently on the cross once for all. He's forgiven me, and my life I walk out is to be one that abides in the goodness of his word faithfully to him. He has forgiven me. My allegiance is to him. I said vertically, but also did you notice 
in 1021, he says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. It's a horizontal picture. The Lord's Supper is vertically a commitment to the Lord, but it's horizontally, it's a commitment to be with the people of the Lord. It's that the Lord has saved us and rescued us and called us to be with his people, to hold one another accountable, to care for each other, to pursue each other when we begin to stray in our lives. So the Lord's Supper, this is a family meal, just as you didn't choose your family. You were brought into a family. That's what the Lord's and the local church is to be is to be a family calling and helping each other to abide in the Word of God, to believe its promises, to sing them over each other, to minister to one another according to the goodness of His Word. So before we take of the bread, I want to read for us this statement that I'm going to summarize in just a moment as well, but I want to read it so it's fresh in our minds before we walk through it. Because in a moment, we're going to distribute. And you, if you've not confessed faith in Christ, if your allegiance is not to Jesus Christ as the Savior of your sins and the Lord of your life, do not partake. This isn't for you. It wouldn't be appropriate. But if you've placed your faith and trust in Christ, this is for you. If you're abiding in Christ, this is for you. It's a reminder of the grace and the goodness of the gospel by which you have been brought into a family. You've been purchased with a price, the sufficient price. Your identity is as a child of the Lord, one whose name has been written in heaven. And this is a good and gracious family meal as we examine ourselves, saying, Lord, I want to honor you in my life. Thank you for the family you've called and given me. So he says in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. Again, the Lord institutes this in verse 24. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This memorial aspect, what we're doing right now as a local church, is a remembrance, a reminder of obedience to what the Lord has called us to. We remember him and what he did, and we celebrate that we'll do this one day with him again in glory. But right now, Jesus defeated death. He didn't stay dead. He took on a glorified, resurrected physical body. He ascended to heaven, and he observes us as we partake of this in his honor and in, in allegiance to him. Verse 25, in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. That's the covenant that we're in, the covenant of the blood of Christ the gospel, the goodness of Christ and what he's done for us. He says, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We are a people who believe the Lord will come again. We're a people that believe the Lord calls us to be faithful in the gospel in our lives personally for our identity and the rest of our lives. We believe truly that we are called to not live simply by bread alone, but by every word of God.